Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. And this is Jay. And this is your new Comics Wednesday episode for Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. Just a quick reminder, everybody, DC Spotlight came out yesterday on Tuesday when the DC books got released. Uh, Rocky from Comic Boom and I covered all the DC books with spoilers in depth. You can check it out on the podcast. You can check it out on the Comic Boom YouTube channel. So we're not going to cover any DC books here. Um, sometimes we do cover some DC books here, spoiler free, even though we have them on the other episode with spoilers. Um, and oftentimes we do that when there's something that Jay really wants to talk about or something I want to talk about with Jay, or there's not a lot of other publishers putting out stuff, but that's not the case this week. There are a ton of, uh, other books out that are really worth your time that we're going to talk about. So we're covering a massive 14 books in this episode and uh, jay's going to kick it off with time after time number three from writers declan shalvey and rory mcconville uh joe palmer is the artist chris o'halloran handles the colors and hassan atzman elhow does the letters so give us the lowdown on uh time after time three jay what'd you think it's good uh, if you remember the last episode uh, we know that uh Tassu is with the uh special agent or fbi agent and uh, they're kind of stuck because they uh, blew up their machine, their time machine. And he's got a, a deal he's trying to make make with the, because um, he's with the syndicate, but now he's trying to make a deal with the union. So in this one, it pretty much focuses on him uh, making the deal with the union. Uh, we get a little bit of the backstory of with, with him and his buddy Oscar, what uh, happened before, what he tried to do and kind of got in trouble for. And it's good because the ending, you kind of find out uh, there's a lot more going on behind the story that there might be uh, some spies here and spies there. So it's uh, it was good. I liked it. And I want to make you want to see what's going to happen in the next uh, issue. Yeah, it's, I really enjoyed it, too. I think the first issue was just them kind of setting up. Okay, here's how time travel works in this world. You can't actually change anything, which I really appreciated because that's, you know, when you have people going back to change things. Time travel stories can get real messy, convoluted. And it's like, why, why am I bothering to read this if at the end of the story, the character could go back and change a little something and it completely invalidates the entire story I just read? That's not the case with time travel in this story. The second issue was a little, confu- a little confusion, a little convoluted. We were kind of thrown in the deep end. But like Jay said, this one, we start to understand that the union is is much like the syndicate. We know the syndicate's a crime organization that you know, black market, they'll hide people that are wanted fugitives or whatnot in the past. We don't really know that much about the union yet. Like we know they're a time travel organization too, but do they work with the government? Do they work? Are they an illegal operation as well? Like we we just don't know. Uh, But we're starting to learn more about the characters and we're starting to just get some straight up story that's intriguing and compelling that doesn't really have anything to do with the time travel stuff. The time travel stuff is becoming sort of just another part of the story but not the focus so i i enjoyed that and i think the the uh, rory mcconville or i'm sorry um rory mcconville's the the the, uh co-writer the joe palmer art um it's a little stylized and it's not as clean as i normally like my art to be but it definitely suits the story uh he does a great job of uh showing action and and whatnot in the story and and emotion through the character faces so yeah, I'm really enjoying it. It's it's, it's a, definitely a solid book. So, uh, all right. Well, let me talk about my first book, Undiscovered Country, from co-writers Scott Snyder and Charles Soule. Art is by Giuseppe Camincola with Leonardo Marcello Grassi. 
colors by Matt Wilson, letters by Crank. Uh, and if you're not familiar, this is basically a story where the United States decades in the past closed off its borders to the rest of the world. And time has passed. We learned in the first uh, arc that time has passed much faster within the walls of the United States than it has in the outside world. The outside world has this terrible pandemic where people are dying and the outside world sends a, a mission in. They recruit various experts from uh, around the world and they send a mission to infiltrate the United States, which has uh, been able to re re uh, repel anybody who's tried to um, to go in there and find out what's going on. And there's still this mystique about the United States around the world, about how capable and powerful they are. And so the, the world's like, we need the United States help, right, with this global pandemic that's going on. So they send this expedition in there. And when the people get in there, they find out the United States is, it's this post-apocalyptic world, right? The first, it's all divided into 13 zones, reminiscent of the 13 colonies. And each of them has a different name and they're based on different things. And the first one was very much this, it was called Discovery. And it was sort of based on this idea of, westward expansion and the whole pioneer spirit of the united states but really it was this dystopian mad max like zone uh that the uh this mission this um these experts that were sent to infiltrate that they had to navigate they made it through that zone they got to the second zone the second zone was all based on technology it was called divinity and again although it looked sort of like uh, a futuristic zone and what you would maybe expect the United States to look like if it was isolated for decades and advanced technology and whatnot, but it was all based on, on the lie. Um, they were actually exploiting uh, these young children, newborns and, and even unborn children to, to draw in this power. And it was sort of, you know, and I, I and again, I'm, I'm kind of summarizing real, real quickly here and being kind of vague, but um, that technology and, and that, that, futurism and that that look at the future and this idea of wanting to be better and and the united states has this uh this country that's on the edge of technology it, it was all based on exploitation so and it's almost like this this mission this um this group that's come in to infiltrate the united states there it's almost like they're discovering these different parts of the united states and and sort of putting bringing their own experiences in context and I don't want to say defeating these zones as they go through them, but learning about themselves and learning about the United States in the context and, and what the end goal is for these writers is real interesting to me. Like it's one thing to talk about these different zones and what they represent in the United States, but they've sort of this group that they've sent in there that they're writing about has sort of left the first two zones in shambles. Right. So what does that say? I mean, are they going to bring down the country? Like, I, I don't know what the end game is at this point. And I like that. I like that. I don't know where it's heading. Uh, but anyway, this is this issue. 14 is the second issue of the third arc where they're in uh, a zone that's called possibility. And it's all about the arts and the culture of the United States. And when you think about things that are un uniquely American in terms of culture, I mean, if it's oil painting or classical music or rock music or movies or TV shows that those things are, are made around the world, right? Everybody kind of has their own versions of those things. Um, and they didn't necessarily start here. Uh, maybe with the exception of Hollywood, you can think about Hollywood movies and, and the whole film industry is sort of an American thing. It certainly has expanded around the globe. Uh, but one of the other things that 
is uniquely American and is known around the world is superheroes, right? I mean, especially with the MCU and whatnot, but we talk about Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, Captain America. I mean, those are heroes known around the world. Certainly other countries have had their own comic book industries and they have uh, come up with their own superheroes, but it definitely started in America. It's definitely an, an American thing. And so with Scott Snyder and Charles Soule, who have written superhero comics for the big two, it's no surprise that that's one of the things that they focus on in this arc that's all about possibility. So uh, it's an interesting story. Uh, I, I enjoy the narrative. I enjoy the sort of esoteric commentary on the United States. And it's interesting. The last issue in the back matter Charles Soule talked about the fact that when he and Scott were conceiving this, uh, they thought they had some pretty wild ideas. And then, I mean, because they, they were working on it a long time before the, the uh, coronavirus pandemic hit. And then all of a sudden, this idea of having a country closed off, this global pandemic, it became not so fictional, right? And so in the back matter of the last issue, Charles Soule talked about these ideas that they've had, especially for this possibility arc that seemed really wild and out there and like big ideas when they initially conceived of them, but now all this time has gone by in the real world and these fantastical ideas have all of a sudden become much more closer to reality. So uh, that's an interesting juxtaposition. And again, it leads me to wonder how the story might change going forward. Um, if they decide to go even further over the top to try to stay ahead of the curves as, uh, as it were with what's going on in the world. Um, and also even originally, what was the end goal for this? Are they just presenting the ideas to start a conversation about the United States and the world in general, and these ideas of us as a as you know a society, as a functioning society, uh, or are we going to be presented with some sort of opinion? So I'm I'm really curious about that. Obviously, the series has a long way to go. Um, with 13 zones, you would expect there to be 13 arcs, and we're only on arc number three here. So it's definitely worth your time. It is a little bit of a denser read. Uh, one of those books you you can go back and read two or three times and get more out of it each time. Uh, but, I, but I think it's great. And the Giuseppe Comancola art really sort of suits the, um, the kind of fantastical out there uh, world of the United States as it is in the, in the story. So I definitely recommend it. Uh, all right, up next, Jay's next book is a Marvel book. It's from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. We have art by Salvador La Roca. Colors are by Guru EFX. Letters by Clayton Cowles. It's Alien, and we're up to issue number five. Uh, Action-packed issue. What'd you think, Jay? Oh, it's good. Uh, it's like you expect from an Alien movie. You know, I got a lot of uh, running around, but it's good because the main uh, character, uh, Cruz, uh, Gabriel, you get more backstory in this, which I like because you find out what happens to because he has two sons. So you're never really sure up to the first son, but you find out in this, which I liked. There's a lot of backstabbing at the end of this, but you also get like a little piece that the uh, that once the host enters your your face, the face grabbers grab you. You actually become in sync with the colony, I guess. So you're all like in the same you can feel them and you know they're around. You can actually see where they're at, which is kind of uh, neat because I never, there, no one ever discussed that before in an alien book. But in this one, they say, yeah, you're connected to the, you know, the whole uh, brood, I guess. And he said, there's one character that he sees that 
you can barely see, but it's hidden in the background. So we don't know if it's a mystery alien or, or the ones that pulling the strings of all the aliens. But the alpha one that's chasing him and the son of this one is just is neat because it's not like your typical alien. You know, it's pretty, pretty neat. But at the very end, it's like, okay, things are going good. But then, of course, someone's got to back some, backstab somebody. And like I said, you also get a, a big picture of what uh, happened to Cruz, to what you know brought him back to this whole cycle again with the, with the company. Yeah, I, I think that this issue certainly gives a lot of context with what Cruz has gone through. We, we've known there's more than meets the eye to him um, and his relationship with Bishop as well is sort of uh, fleshed out. So, yeah, there's a lot of cool ideas. There's a little part of me that that's like, really, these are cool ideas, but shouldn't they be introduced in movies? But I get it. Like the movies, it takes so much longer to, to build out a, a movie than a comic. So introducing ideas like the fact you can actually save somebody even after they've been impregnated if you can manage to cut the alien out of them before it hatches and bursts out of their chest um like i guess that makes sense when i stop and think about it um and and the idea that when the face huggers on you you're if you can manage to wake up that yeah there's some sort of connection there um some sort of mental link that that's that's a cool idea and also really terrifying, <laughs> you know, it's bad enough, <laughs> bad enough that you're, you can't move, you're paralyzed and you have this horrible creature on your, um, on your face. That's got this, you know, that's laying an egg down your throat. I mean, that's bad enough without having these horrific mental images. Uh, but yeah, that, that it's been such a great fast paced action packed story from Philip Kennedy Johnson, hel- helping to flesh out this world of the aliens. He's such a good world builder um and it's almost like he's better at world building when there's some groundwork and some foundation already laid down like in the alien universe and he can just build on that you know absolutely fantastic and the artwork from Salvador Roca is is fantastic as his artwork usually is so yeah uh, this was probably my favorite issue of the series so far it was just so so action packed and and yet there was plenty of time for character moments and we got a big chunk of story learning about Gabriel's other son and, and Gabriel himself, what he's been to been through. So yeah, really, really. I mean, if you like the alien movies at all, I would definitely recommend picking up the, the alien books that Marvel's putting out right now. Uh, all right. Up next for me, gamma flight part two of five from Al Ewing and Christopher uh, crystal Frazier land Medina's the artist. Antonio Fabella is, does the colors, Joe Sabino on letters. Uh, and this is basically the story of, uh, Absorbing Man and Titania and Puck, um, Doc Samson, who's actually in Sasquatch's body, and uh, the Rick Jones Del Fry sort of hybrid, along with Charlene McGowan. Uh, and all these characters are from Al Ewing's Immortal Hulk run. And they've shown up quite a bit throughout the run, but I think with only a couple issues of Immortal Hulk left, Ewing definitely wants to focus on on Bruce Banner and the Hulk and get that story resolved. So there probably wasn't enough room in the pages of the immortal Hulk book to give these guys enough room to, to finish off their story. And so I'm glad that Al Ewing and Crystal Frazier are uh, getting the, it, their own mini series uh, for gamma flight in order to, to finish off this, this story. And it doesn't necessarily say it's a limited series, but I, I think I heard that it's only five issues, but even so, um, Again, it's, it's adding more texture and more 
nuance to the, the kind of the incredible Hulk corner of the Marvel universe, because at, he's been around so long, he really does have his own corner. You know, when you start talking about how many villains he has, I mean, the entire immortal Hulk story has been about the, you know, the one below, but the fact that the leader um, has sort of taken over, you know, and is sort of this, this disciple or apostle, or uh, he's, he's siphoned power from the one below and he's able to, to really put the Hulk through his paces, but you know we're going to have fifty issues in the Mortal Hulk, and there's haven't been too many other classic Hulk villains show up. Um, well, that's not the case here in Gamma Flight. At the end of Gamma Flight, we see the return of a classic Hulk villain who I've kind of been wondering where this guy's been at for a long time, and so having him show back up, seeing some mandroids in here, seeing uh, at the end of last issue, the first issue of the series, Scar. Hulk's son showed back up, and so we get uh, him in this issue as well, and he's kind of reminiscent of, of some things that we've seen in the Immortal Hulk uh, series previously with General 14, so you wonder if there's a connection there. Uh, I, I won't spoil it and let you know what, what that connection is, but um, again, this is really enriching the Immortal Hulk story and, and that uh, world that Al Ewing has built it, it has the same sort of tone it doesn't with the landmining art the body horror isn't as much of a uh, it's not as much in the forefront of the of the art and the story it doesn't feel quite because the Mortal Hulk at times very much can feel like a, a horror book um, this doesn't have that feel it feels much more super heroic um, but if you're enjoying in immortal hulk and if you enjoyed seeing puck and titania and uh, absorbing man and whatnot as a team along with doc sampson you definitely should be reading this it's 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 certainly worth your time so uh and i yeah i can't really say much more about the story than that other than there's plenty of action they obviously fight scar throughout the issue uh and like i said some mandroids show up and then that, that classic hulk villain at the end and uh one last thing that i'll say about it is I really like the way Al Ewing uses Absorbing Man. Um, he, he he makes him feel very powerful in terms of the way Absorbing Man uses his powers. He's not the kind of dumb brute that uh, Absorbing Man has has sort of classically been depicted as, and I do like that. So, uh, all right, Jay's going to talk about a Marvel book as well. Up next, it's the Strange Magic Finale in uh, Captain Marvel number thirty. Writer Kelly Thompson, artist is Jacopi Kamani, uh, Espin Grudajarn does the colors, and then we have Clayton Cowell on letters, both for the main story, and there's also a backup story that's from writer and artist Jamie McKelvey, uh, because this is a, a large exercise issue for uh, for number 30 here. So, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. What did you think, Jay? It was good. I just got to give a shout out to the artists. The artwork is amazing. The colors, it's they're, it's awesome. <laughs> the story is good. Um, you know, we know that uh, Captain Marvel went to go see en Enchantress for some help to try to figure out her magic. But we find in the story that um, <clears throat> if, you know, if there's a cost for this if she decides to do this. But it's uh, so much in the story I don't want to give away because that's pretty much giving the whole story. But she thinks of somebody, which is a bad idea with this woman because she can read your mind. So that just leads a whole spin ball of trouble down her path. The ending was uh, interesting because I can't believe the other character actually 
did what it did. I think I thought it was going to help him, not realizing what the side effect was going to be. <clears throat> but uh, the whole concept is this uh, heart of the dragon that they're trying to get, or I'm sorry, heart of the serpent is supposed to, you know, get rid of uh, magic, but it's like permanent. It's not just like a temporary thing, which is uh, a taboo and for wizards and whatnot. But needs to say the ending is the best because you get Dr. Strange saying that, you know, um, some of the things you do will come with a cost because Scarlet Witch said that the path was dark clouded ahead because now you made some more. She's made some serious enemies um, at the end of the book, but not just with, you know, the bad guys, but I think with the whole world of uh, sorcery, because they all think it's very taboo what, she, what, what happened you know, in the story. But she does get back with uh, her boyfriend. Um, Raymond Blank, uh, Rhodes. Rhodes. So I yeah. guess, I guess, I guess they're back together in this. Is what's like the cool part of it is the story. They're back together finally, but there was a huge price to pay in the story. So we'll see how it plays out. I guess later on. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like in terms of what goes down with the story, you sort of feel for Carol and feel like she didn't really have a choice. The exchange with Doctor Strange at the end does feel a little harsh. Um, and yeah, Carol may be left out in the cold. She's definitely made some enemies with the choices she made. But again, I feel like she didn't really have a, a choice. So it's interesting that the choices that Kelly Thompson, the writer, is making for Carol and the position she's putting Carol in, which sort of leads into the Jamie McKelvey story. Um, because Carol's basically going to Miss Marvel and, and saying, you know, I know you've, you've looked up to me and you were inspired by me. You even took your name, Miss Marvel, uh, from me. But, you know, I just went through this terrible ordeal and, uh, the resolution may have cost me more than I realized in terms of um, pissing off my allies even. And so, you know, if that's the case, uh, I'm feeling pretty low. And she, she basically, she's like, uh, and this is going to sound silly, but can you remind me of why you looked up to me in the first place? So I love the fact that it's Jamie McKelvey, who's a very talented, both writer and artist telling the story and the artwork that McKelvey gives us is, is, absolutely amazing it's so good uh, but what was great is the fact that he tied his story into the events that just finished up in the first story uh, so I thought that was really cool and it's always great to see Kamala Khan and, and Carol Danvers interact and so I, I I almost liked the kind of the emotional aftermath story of the backup more than I did the main story uh, but they're both they're both equally good and, and really fantastic and Jay's right the art you know I mentioned the McKelvey art but the uh, the line work and the color work in the in the uh, in the main story by Jacopi uh, Kamini and Espen Brudigern is is fantastic as well. Uh, and the other thing I noticed, we get a little note in the back of the book from the uh, the editor um, who's talking about uh, uh, Sarah Brunstad is the editor, and she's talking about this is the first time that a um, a Carol Danvers Captain Marvel series has made it to issue thirty. And I was surprised by that. I was like, wait, we had the we had the um, Kelly Sue DeConnick run and then we had the Margaret Stoll run. But apparently neither, neither one of those ever made it to 30. Um, so I was a little surprised to to hear that. But I, I mean, this is a great book. I sing its praises every, every month. I think Kelly Thompson's a fantastic writer. Um, and based on the strength of Captain Marvel is one of the reasons I gave her my uh, writer of the year for for 2020. So, yeah, this was a this was a great issue and I, I am curious though now that the this magic focused story arc is over 
if Carol's going to go back to her, her classic costume or if we're going to keep this, this new costume she has, um, I'm sort of, I sort of have mixed feelings. I like this new darker costume. I think it looks really cool, but I mean, based on what happens in the backup story, it looks like she might be going back to her, her previous costume, which I also think is a very classic costume. That's the one that most people will recognize. You know, it's the one that she wears in the MCU movie, but I don't know. I like that new costume a lot too. So I guess I'm okay either way, <laughs> whatever, they, <laughs> whatever they do, if they keep the new one or go back to the old one, I'll, I'll, I'll be fine with it. So yeah, they're both pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Let me move on to my next book. It's uh, home. Issue number four, it's from writer Julio Anta. The art is by Anna Wisnik, colors by Brian Valenza, letters by Hassan Atzman Elhau. Uh, I've been talking about this book since it came out. I know it's flying under the radar. It's from Image, and it's basically about these, um, these immigrants that try to come to the United States from Venezuela to escape some gang violence and whatnot, and the little boy gets separated from his mother at the border, like uh, a lot of uh, refugees that have been coming to the United States in the past couple of years. Um, but unbeknownst to the uh, people running the detention center, this little boy and unbeknownst to the little boy him, himself, uh, the little boy has uh, powers. Um, he has energy projection. He's strong and has some limited vulnerability and super speed. Um, and when he gets really stressed out and backed into a corner, he manifests these powers and he uses them to escape the detention center. Uh, unfortunately, his mother is deported back to Venezuela, but the little boy manages to connect with his aunt who uh, came to the United States years prior and has a job as a nurse at a hospital and, and has an apartment and whatnot. And so the little boy has managed to talk to his mother on the phone and his mother tells him that his father who had passed away had these powers too. And his aunt, which is his father's sister, knows about it and helped his father gain control of his powers. And his mother tells him, just be safe, keep your head down, listen to your aunt, your aunt will help show you how to control your powers so that you uh, don't draw attention to yourself and you can be safe until I can come and join you. So like a lot of uh, immigrants, they're coming to the United States for a better life uh, and also to, to try to hide these powers um, because they're worried that the people that killed the father may come after the son, believing that he has power. So in the last issue, they were out in the woods, the aunt and the little boy, and the aunt was trying to explain how to use the powers when um, somebody saw the little boy use his powers, called the authorities, the authorities showed up, and they had to make a break for it. And so this issue starts off, and we have these, um, these agents of ICE that are like really over the top. Uh, in terms of just aggressive and uh, I would even go so far as to say immoral. Uh, the, uh, the writer, Julio Anta, he's not pulling his punches here with, with um, kind of the political, political aspects of it. I mean, th this is not right. These, these people are out to kill this little boy um, because they think he's a threat and it's no questions asked. It's not, you know, live and let live or, I mean, the only time the little boy's ever used his powers has been when he's been threatened, you know, and the, his aunt was trying to teach him to control the powers. So even when he felt threatened, he wouldn't accidentally hurt anybody. But all these um, all these agents care about is the fact that this little boy is is the enemy in their eyes. It's black and white to them and they just want to kill him. And it, it, it gives you it makes you feel icky. It really does. It's like this is not right. Um, so, again, I, you know, I know it's a pretty political book in that, and some people aren't going to like that. But, you know, if you are one of those people that, that felt that 
what was happening at the border was wrong. Um, this is really putting a face on that uh, with its superhero twist. And then at the end of the book, at the end of this issue, we meet a couple of other characters. And when that happened, I was I was happy. Uh, I, I liked it. I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. So even though it started out as a very kind of small and personal story, like I didn't I didn't even know that the little boy had powers. It's not apparent when you're reading the first issue, not right until the end. Um, but the book has slowly transitioned into sort of more of a superhero type book uh, or more of a book about people with powers than it first appeared to be. Um, but I, I think it's definitely worth reading. Um, you know, we talk about diversity and wanting more uh, diverse voices in comics to tell diverse stories. Well, here's a, you know, a Latin creator who's telling a story about Latin characters. And I think we need to support this because we need more representation in comics so that we can get more comic readers, right? Um, a bunch of Latin kids aren't going to read. I mean, they might, but they're uh, about, you know, white superheroes or whatnot, but they're more likely to stick around if they can at least have some books where they can see themselves represented. Um, and on top of that, this isn't just about token representation. This is a good story. This is a fun story. Uh, and the art by uh, Anna Wisnick is it's a little stylized. It's a little cartoony, but it definitely suits the story. Um, and, and you get a big chunk of story. There's a lot of panels uh, in this one because there's a lot of action and uh, a lot happens. It really moves the narrative forward quite a bit. So uh, I do recommend it. It's a, it's a good story. I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it, but I, I definitely feel like it's worth your time. So check it out if you are so inclined. Uh, all right. Up next, we have another Marvel book. It's a debut issue. For a classic Marvel character, it's Moon Knight number one. It's from writer Jed McKay. The art is by Alessandro Capuccio. Colors by Rochelle Rosenberg and letters by Corey Petit. There's about a million covers, um, but I, I particularly <laughs> like the Scotty Young, <laughs> the Scotty Young cover. It really grabbed me. But uh, anyway, what'd you think, Jay? Yeah, I was gonna say there's like there's like a million covers. I mean, they're making their money. Put it the comic industry is smart. They're putting number one. Let's put fifty titles or covers. See what happens. But uh, yeah, I, I always liked it, like kind of like Moon Knight because to me he was the DC's answer to Batman. I guess because you know he uh, is a little darker, a little edgier. I guess, but you know, I guess uh, both companies copied from each other. <laughs> This isn't bad. I mean, it, it, it was different. Um, you know, the main character, Mark uh, Spector, you know, he's Moon Knight. Um, he starts uh, Midnight Mission. So if you have issues, you can come to him for help. Um, it wasn't bad. Uh, it was a good story. Um, he, I mean, uh, I don't want to give away too much of it, but let's say he just talks to someone to try to, you know, get stuff off his chest. Um, he has an assistant that's kind of a kind of a smart ass, but, you know, she's there helping him out. And then at the, uh, the van, you know, I guess... I guess we we're talking about before. Uh, it's like you know, Marvel and DC are you know pushing for new characters every month. You know, I guess you know four per month. I think that was what they're trying to do. That's what it seems like to me. But we get a couple of new characters in this, so we get uh, one that's going to be. I guess it might be bad, but we're no one that's you know kind of watching what he's doing behind the, the, the curtains to speak is actually you know a, a villain. But it wasn't bad. I mean, they're just setting up, I guess, a storyline for the new villains. Yeah, I don't know if I like this. Um... I thought the art was okay. It's not as clean as uh, of a style as what I usually like. Um, although the line work is really fine lines, very, very light line weights, which helps it flow kinetically. Um, 
but but I don't know. It doesn't. The art doesn't quite have the impact. I think the line weights need to be a little a little thicker. But beyond that, I mean, it, it's so reminiscent of what Warren Ellis did, right? With with Moon Knight, um, where he's Mister Knight and he's he's dressed all in white and um, tr- trying to get back to that sort of story that they did with the the Greg Smallwood art. But the problem is, like in that story, Warren Ellis really tried to establish a mystique for Moon Knight. He said very little. A lot of the story was told in the art. Um, What Jed McKay is trying to do here feels much more nuanced and complicated and bigger in scope than what Warren Ellis did. So you, you, by, by definition, um, you necessarily need a lot more dialogue to explain what's going on. So Mark Spector as, as Moon, as Mr. Knight, you know, in this white suit, he talks a lot, um, which doesn't necessarily jive with this version of Moon Knight that that we saw in the Warren Ellis run. So I don't I don't know if I like it yet. Um, and and I, I don't know. I mean, Moon Knight was always a character that I enjoyed classically in in his first run, and even in the six issue run in the in the mid eighties. But then it's it feels like since then they've wanted to lean into this what they used to call multiple personality disorder. And now they call um, DID disassociative ID disorder, where, you know, it's basically has all these different personas. Um, And, and even Mark Spector himself admits that he's insane. He's crazy. Um, There are some hints here that Jed McKay may try to explain exactly how that happened. And does that mean he can be cured? But I don't know. I've always sort of enjoyed the, just more regular superhero Moon Knight without this whole idea of him being nuts and, uh, and, and having all these problems and literally being in in the same asylum at times in the Jeff Lemire run. So, but I don't know. I mean, it never really sold that well. And I guess people just felt it was a ripoff of Batman when you, when you go and write stories about him where it's just straight super heroism. So I guess we'll see. I'm on board for at least one more issue. Um, but I have to admit, I was looking forward to this, especially with the Oscar Isaac Moon Knight movie coming up, and I wasn't I wasn't blown away. Um, I didn't hate it, but I just I I was a little disappointed in it. I wanted to like it more, but you know maybe maybe it's just a personal preference for me. Maybe uh, a lot of people will enjoy it, but um, I just thought it was okay. Oh yeah, it wasn't too bad. Not to say it wasn't the greatest, but it wasn't bad. I mean, I, I didn't expect it to be that great because you can't do anything they did in the '80s. That was just, you know, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. There's been and there've been good runs, but I don't, I don't know. I'm not. I I feel like Marvel doesn't know what to do with Moon Knight these days. <laughs> kind of how I feel. So anyway, Miles Morales Spider Man number twenty eight is up next for me. Uh, the Clone Saga conclusion. Saladin Ahmed is the writer. Carmen Caniero gives us some. Fantastic art, David Curiel on colors, Corey Petit on letters. Um, we saw at the end of last issue, the the main clone of Miles Morales had had gone to Miles Morales's house and taken his his baby sister Billy, and so that's where this issue picks up. And you know, I talked about when we first heard there was going to be a clone saga for Miles Morales. You know, those words "clone saga," and you're a Spider-Man fan, it just evokes this visceral reaction everybody's like oh my god the clone saga got such a bad rap it dragged on forever and ever and ever and all these tie-ins and specials and it went across every 
uh, Spider-Man book. This went totally the other way. It was just in Miles Morales' Spider-Man, and it ended up feeling like not a very big story at all. It was only three issues. Um, so I almost feel like maybe it went it went the other way too much, and Saladin Amid should have fleshed it out a little more because we don't really learn that much about the clones. Um, and supposedly this is the conclusion, but all I'll say is this. Um, you don't see any bodies at the end. And in comics, is anybody ever really dead? Uh, we, we don't know. So it, this ends up being a lot of action. But I, I question the reason for doing it. I question the reason for having this clone saga because it isn't really anything original other than Miles going up against clones of himself. But it, I didn't feel like he it really did anything for Miles to sort of learn and grow as a, as a character. Um, and so, I don't know. I just, I sort of feel like this is just average comic book stuff. And I, uh, and frankly, I expect more from, from Saladin Ahmed because he's given me more in, uh, the entirety of his run of Miles Morales. He's shown a real understanding and proclivity for the character and Carmen Canero's art has been absolutely fantastic. And that that's not to say that her art's not fantastic here. It absolutely is. And it's action packed and, you know, gorgeous art, great layouts, page layouts. And I loved her use of, uh, of the camera, the way she moves it around and gives us interesting angles. And so from a technical point of view, and uh, even for, for Saladin Ahmed with the, uh, with the scripting and the dialogue and the pacing, everything is great. Everything is wonderful. But again, I just, I sort of question the idea of writing this story, putting it out and calling it the clone saga when it sort of doesn't, seem to have a purpose uh, now whether there are consequences from what happened to miles in the story and what happened to his sister in the story then i guess you know down the line i might revisit my uh, opinion of it if uh, there are consequences that lead to you know growth for miles or in interesting stories down the line but for now i just kind of feel like okay just an average comic book story and like I said, I sort of expect more from this creative team because they've given me so much more uh, the entire time up to this point. So again, kind of like Moon Knight, it was just okay. Um, but Saladin Ahmed and, and uh, the whole creative team have been spectacular on this uh, series so far. So hoping for better, uh, hoping for better next issue. And we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, okay. Next book Jay's going to talk about is one of our favorite titles, uh, Radiant Black Issue 6 from writer Kyle Higgins with Cheris Chen as a co-writer on this issue. The art in this issue is by Darko Lafuente. We have colors by Miguel Murto, letters by Becca Carey, editing and design by Michael Basudel. Um, this is a very interesting issue. Uh, it definitely gives a different viewpoint, a different perspective on a character that we've uh, seen in the pages of Radiant Black previously. So what did you think, Jay? When I uh, first opened it up, I thought I was reading the wrong story. I was like, who is this? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah, I thought they were just going to focus on the main characters and uh, from they, that's what they've been doing. But no, instead we get the backstory for, I guess, Radiant Red, I guess we'll call her. Yep. So we get a backstory of her. We, you know, we get to know her name. Um, we meet her family. Uh, we know that she gets a fiance. There's, there's so much going on in the story. Uh, I don't want to give away too much of the backstory, but we find out why um, 
how she got the power and uh, what was the motive for her to become a thief because she was just trying to, you know, financially help out what was going on with uh, her and her fiance. So it's, you're right. It does give it because you think she's just a bad, you know, bad guy or a bad girl, I guess, but you find out like there's a lot more going on and the reason why she's doing all this. I liked it. It was, it was different. I didn't expect that at all, but I guess reading black as the writer, they, they know how to like uh, kind of make you do a left and a right turn sometimes. Cause like I said, we know one's the coma, the main character. So now we're like, okay, now what? So this is our next, I guess the next uh, story in the cycle, but yeah, I, I liked it. It was, it was, it was good. So let me ask you this. Previous to reading this issue, did you like Radiant Red? No, because I thought she was, you know, a bad person. We thought it was a guy the whole time. At but first, when they, we thought it was, well, was a guy. Yeah. When they because they didn't show the 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 figure, and yeah. this one you actually can see, you know, a figure of a female. Yeah. And they were pretty smart about hiding that till this point. So I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we get a little more about her powers. You know how she can kind of absorb. Um, you know, from the environment around her to create armor. And, and that's sort of what her radiant power is and, and how she's powered herself up. And, and yeah, she comes across the first few times we meet her. And again, like Jay said, we didn't even know it was a female. A radiant red comes across the first few times they're on the, the comic book page as this person. I think you're purposely, I think Kyle Higgins and the rest of the creative team purposely make radiant red unlikable. They don't want you to like radiant red and, and you don't. And, you know, especially after what happened with uh, with Nathan, you're like, no, Radiant Red is is definitely the the antagonist of, of the story. Right. And then you read this story and all of a sudden you're you're identifying with her and you're you're feeling bad for her and you're sort of rooting for her. Um, and, and, you know, in that way, it's relatable because at times in our lives, we're all victims of, of circumstance. So, yeah, super emotional issue. Th that's what's so great about Radiant Black as a series, how we can get these really awesome sort of epic fights between these different radiants and whatnot and these cool ideas with um, how the radiants may have gotten their powers and alien races and this big planetary ending or universe ending threat that's on its way to Earth. But then they can pull it back and give us these emotional issues where it's all about character. Like we had an issue three with Nathan struggling to write. And now here in, uh, in issue six, where we learn all about, um, about Radiant Red and uh, Satomi, who is the, the character of Radiant Red and uh, her family and how much she cares about people and, yeah, the circumstances and, and how backed into a corner she felt. And so, yeah, fantastic. The Darko Lafayette art is really great. It's uh, It's got a softness to it. And that's carried through with the colors by Miguel Muerto that really sort of give us a, an emotional feel for the story. And then when Satomi gets the radiant red power, um, so there's some great scenes there as well. And obviously the, the color red being a, a big factor in the in the coloring of the story and sort of setting the tone and i mean the the last panel of the story of satomi is just kind of says it all it's it's really fantastic so radiant red continues to be one of the best titles out there there is uh there's no doubt of that so oh yeah good writing that's all i gotta say it's like i kind of every time i read it, it's like i don't know what to expect and i really didn't expect this at all <laughs> yeah, exactly uh all right up to my next book it's uh from aftershock comics 
project patron number four, Experiments and Extinction from writer Steve Orlando. Art is by Patrick Piazza-Lunga. Colors by Carlos Lopez. Letters by Hassan Atzman Elhau. Man, uh, what can I say about Project Patron? It has been so much more than what I expected from the beginning. And, you know, we had uh, Steve Orlando on the show to talk about it. And he, he talked about it being this story about uh, the relationships between the various people that are part of Project Patron. Uh, the overall idea is that there's this uh, superhero called Patron who is sort of like a, a Superman type character. And he uh, many, many years ago in the past fights a doomsday-like character, um, and he's actually killed. He does manage to defeat um, that character, but um, th that character is called Woe, and he does manage to defeat that character, but, but Patron himself dies. Well, then the government, the United States government, decides to cover that up, the fact that Patron died fighting Woe, and they create basically a, a clone but the clone doesn't have any ability. It's called a reploid. And it doesn't have any ability to function on its own. So they recruit these people that work at Project Patron that basically go into this um, this, spher this spherical device, uh, and their consciousness is basically uh, interfaced with the the clone or the reploid, and they they control Patron. And they have but different people that are part of Project Patron that are better at, at different missions. Like some are better at the fighting missions, some are better at the scientific missions, some are better at sort of the PR or humanitarian missions and those kind of things. Um, and so, you know, Steve Orlando was talking about the fact that um, what does it take to, to be part of Project Patron, to keep the secret um, and to make the sacrifice? Because as a uh, part of Project Patron, every time you go in and interface with the reploid you 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 cut time off the end of your life it, it's you know it's not healthy basically it it sort of burns up your uh, your life energy um so you know fascinating what what, what would uh, you know motivate somebody to do that to make that sacrifice and so that that was what we expected the story to be about and it has been about that to some extent but what steve didn't tell us was that there's a whole other part of the story about this sort of Machiavellian Lex Luthor type villain who has pulled some strings and um, has managed to sort of infiltrate Project Patron in a way that he now has them over a barrel. Uh, and, you know, what he's going to do with that, we're not sure at the end of issue three. Well, in issue four, we find out um, what his sort of master plan is. And it forces the other members of Project Patron to sort of reassess and try to figure out how they can defeat this guy. Because the other thing that this guy has done that we saw last issue is it turns out that Woe, much like Patron, has found a way to survive. Um, and he's been uh, imprisoned in the moon. Well, now his, uh, his tomb in the moon has been cracked open and Woe is headed back toward Earth. Um, and so... This guy's, you know, has, has had this plan all along, and now the members of Project Patron are backed into a corner, and they have to figure out what they can do to try to um, to not only defeat Woe, but defeat this other villain that their uh, Mammon is his name, that they're uh, that has basically infiltrated Project Patron in a way that they're sort of at his mercy. So, uh, one issue to go. I can't wait to see how it all wraps up. 
Um, I love the emotion, love the characterization. I love the art. It's very gritty and, and visceral, but still feels like superhero art. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a really fun book. And, and once again, th this is the, this type of book from Steve Orlando, along with his uh, Commanders in Crisis title over at Image, really show Steve's understanding and love of the medium. Like, this is a fantastic story. This is like, um, like Superman versus Doomsday, like the death of Superman, uh, the sequel. You know, obviously it's not Superman because it's not DC and it's not Doomsday because again, it's not DC, it's Patron and it's Woe, but it's like, okay, what if, what if Superman really had stayed dead? How do you replace Superman? Um, what does it take for the average person to make those kind of sacrifices when they don't have invulnerability and, and actual superpowers? So, it, you know, in a way, in that way, it's an examination of comics itself in the guise of being this really fun, over-the-top, intriguing and compelling story that, uh, that Steve Orlando is telling about, about superheroes. So highly recommend uh, Project Patron. You know, it's another one of those fantastic books from Aftershock. So, uh, all right. Up next is Shadecraft number five. This is from the Eisner-nominated uh, team of Joe Henderson writing, Lee Garbett as the artist, Antonio Fabella does the colors, and Simon Boland on letters. Uh, this one's yours, Jay. What do you think? Well, I can't say enough about the artwork. The artwork is pretty amazing. Um, the story, I, I know we were talking about it earlier, but... Uh, I liked it because, you know, we got the Zadie working with her mom. So now we can't actually see because um, remember, we know in the last issue, her mom was actually working for the government. So she did a lot of uh, I guess super swirly stuff with her powers. So in this one, we get to see some of her uh, her talent with those powers. And we even see Zadie going, hey, you can teach me that. She never really answers it. So there's a lot more to the gift. She just has to learn, I guess, from her mom. But they're in there trying to uh, get their brother out of there. I don't want to get with too much of a way, but we just say that there's a lot of uh, a lot of action in this. Um, the family, I mean, the whole family, the dad gets involved, you know, to try to, you know, uh, get everybody, get the family back together, more or less. Um, Angela, the main, I guess the, the villain of the story, you know, we um, get to the point where like, is she or isn't she? But, you know, you have to find out at the end to see what happens. But she's still going to be a threat, obviously, I guess. And um, the ending got me, though, because I thought I saw, I thought when I downloaded, I was always uh black pages so i was like oh man what, what happened but it's actually part of the story i was like okay they got me on that one it was good i know um i think you said you want a little bit more of it but i guess this is just a way of tying it up and i what i like about it though is the very end the writer tells you what was going on behind the scene when they put the story together with the pandemic and everything they weren't too sure if this book was going to succeed or not and they just and everybody else got busy doing other projects so he said you know they'll try to get back together and do a, you know maybe another run on it but I enjoyed it. It was a, it was a good story. You know, I, I kind of wanted more like you. I, I kind of wanted more issues, but I, I can understand after reading the, you know, what happened at the, at the back end. And if they do a Netflix show. Hey, I'm on board for that too. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. That's definitely how we could get more of this. If, if the Netflix show gets a green light. So yeah, when I say, you know, I wanted more, it's not that I wanted more in this particular issue. It's that this series has been so good that why wouldn't I want more of this series? Right. Um, and yeah, like I, I get it. This is the sophomore effort from, from this creative team and, you know, things were a little uncertain at the time and they, they just weren't sure. So I get it. But with what happened in issue, 
the revelation that happened at the end of issue three, and then with issue four, giving us the information about Zadie's mom, yeah, being part of this clandestine government agency and going out and doing espionage and all kinds of, of crazy spy stuff and political assassinations and what have you. The book in issue four totally flipped for me in terms of what it felt like. Like when I first talked to Joe when he came on the show and we, and we talked about it, I felt like this was going to be uh, a story that had a, a little bit of a horror tone, um, a little bit of slice of life and a little bit about uh, just Zadie as a, as a teenager and struggling with uh, acceptance and, you know, her, what happened to her brother and getting in a car accident and whatnot. And, and I expected the story to be a little smaller, a little more intimate. Um, and I expected it to be about family with what happened with issue four, with her mother getting involved and us finding out that her mother has the shadow uh, powers as well. The, the shade craft, as they call it, her brother has, uh, perhaps has shade craft powers as well. All of a sudden it was still a family book, but instead of feeling so intimate and small, even though the, the familiar relationships are there and they're still just as strong, all of a sudden the scope of the book expanded. Um, and, and it's like the whole world opened up to where the sky's the limit with these characters and with this world that, that they've built. And even at the end, like you mentioned, Joe talks about sort of the timeline and why they have to leave it for now. And, and he, 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 he says that this was always designed, these first five issues were always designed as a story with a beginning, a middle, and then an, an end, and then another beginning. And again, we don't want to spoil, but that's exactly how it all plays out. This, this issue five feels like uh, it does wrap up the story and answers a lot of questions and gives us a satisfying conclusion, but it also feels like the beginning of a bigger world, a bigger story that they can, that this creative team can tell with these characters. Um, and so when I say I'm, I'm, I wanted more, I, I mean, I want more. That world has now been opened up. I've seen what it is. We know Zadie's mom has powers. We know Zadie has powers. What can they do together? Uh, where can this go from here? Um, can they be, uh, I, I don't know, like an A-team sort of uh, group, right? Where they're out there helping, <laughs> helping people who have no, no one else to turn to. I mean, they could go anywhere with this. It's, it's, it's fantastic. So I certainly hope that it gets picked up by Netflix because, like I said, if it does, they're going to probably need another arc if, if Shadecraft does go to Netflix and they, they do – I imagine – Season one could just be the first five issues, but then if it does well and they want a season two, uh, well, we need another arc, guys. So, yeah, I'm so good. So, so good. And like you said, the art was fantastic. It's been fantastic throughout. Lee Garbett uh, has just like the story itself, the, the tone of the book went from feeling sort of small and intimate. I feel like Lee's art went from from being sort of small to, to growing along with the story and being real epic. Uh, and the same thing with Antonio Fabello's colors. Um, Joe Henderson sung Antonio's praises when he came on the show, talking about how much more heavy lifting Antonio had to do in this book than he necessarily did in Skyward, where his work was also exceptional. But here with the shadow, so much of that, um, the powers and the, the manipulation of shadow and whatnot, that, that all fell on uh, Antonio Fabella to make that work. And he's made it work very, very well. So, yeah, absolutely fantastic story. A couple of great covers, and this book can't come back fast enough in my mind. So damn good. Um, and I, this, yeah. yeah, I just want to see what the mom. Yeah, when I read that, 
that little letter in the back from Joe, I was like, oh man, <laughs> like I love the end of this and I can't, couldn't wait. I, I was so excited to see where it went next for issue six. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, we got to go, we got to take a little break. I totally get it. You know, people are busy and they got other jobs and, and other work and whatnot. So I don't begrudge them that, but man, I really hope that, uh, that this comes back. And the other thing I was talking to a, a comic book retailer I know the other day, and he was saying that he, he's surprised that Shadecraft hasn't been selling better. Um, it hasn't been selling as well as, as Skyward. So I was kind of surprised by that because I, you know, Skyward, a lot of people jumped on. Um, so I don't, I don't know the reason why Shadecraft isn't selling as, as well, but it should, it should be. I mean, the first couple issues sold really well. Um, I don't know, maybe people kind of got that same feeling that I did that it felt like a little bit of a smaller story and they didn't hang on for issue three and then issue four where everything really opened up. Um, so I don't know, or maybe some people are waiting for the trade. I could imagine this, these five issues selling very, very well in, in the trade, uh, because when you read them all together and, and that story just blossoms, uh, toward the end of issue three and, and through issue four into this, uh, final issue of the arc. Yeah. I could see a lot of people talking about it and, and it's selling really well. So I guess we'll see how it all plays out. I just want to see the mom do more with her with her powers because she knows she knows she can do a lot more. That's what I that's what I want. I want to see more of what she can do. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100. So, uh, all right, what I'm going to talk about next? Oh, okay, another aftershock book, Silver City number three. It's called Returns. This is from writer Olivia Cortero Briggs, art and color by Luca Merrily, Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, and this one, in a way, it's a little similar to what I was just talking about with Shadecraft. Uh, the first issue really kind of fleshed out the, the world of Silver City, which Silver City is sort of like purgatory, right? Like you die and you go to the afterlife, but what if the afterlife is just sort of like life? You got to get a job, you got to get uh, an apartment, you got to find a place um, to live and make friends and do all that sort of thing. But it's it's a much more dreary place and there's sort of fantastical elements going on and there's all these strange rules and you have to sort of um, you know, learn the lay of the land. And it's not like growing up in, in the real world and going to school and get edu getting educated and then sort of finding your place because you show up in Silver City at whatever age you were when you die. And you just have to, you're kind of thrown in the deep end and you sort of just have to figure it out. And then with issue two and now into issue three, we find out there's a lot more to Silver City than, uh, than we thought. And there are forces at work, as it were. We learn about these uh, other worlds, other cities of, uh, of the afterlife. And we learn about different knights and uh, different people in power. And there's clearly a lot of political machinations going on behind the scenes. And we get hints of that in issue two. And now in issue three, that it's it's full force we we see some of um what's called the queen's guards um and and who are they and who's the queen and how they are an obstacle to rue's mission rue being the main character of the story we saw in issue two that rue meets this little girl who is is there in silver city but she's not really there and the reason for that is because she's not actually dead. Like everybody else in Silver City is dead. Well, this girl was sent there accidentally. She's in a vegetative state in the real world. And 
And Rue has taken it upon herself to help her, to help this little girl named Junie to get her back. They need to send her back to the real world so that she'll wake up out of her vegetative state. And there's been some hints that, that there's more to Rue than meets the eye, that perhaps she has these powers um, that she doesn't even necessarily understand or have the ability to control. And she's trying to, to learn those. And what does that have to do with her going to Silver City? And uh, what does it have to do with how she died? And is there more than meets the eye to that as well? So it started off as this sort of kind of dreary story about the afterlife and again maybe thinking it was going to be a little slice of life with rue trying to come to terms with her being dead and navigate the silver city and uh, olivia cortero briggs has thrown all these other layers into it all this other mystery um, and intrigue with these other characters and these other ideas and perhaps rue's part of something that's much much bigger and richer so the story just feels like it's building layer upon layer um from that foundation we got in the first issue that really set the tone and the mood of Silver City uh, as a place and Silver City as a story. Uh, and Luca Merley, who does the, the line work and the colors, has done a fantastic job of establishing that mood right from the start with the, the dreary uh, colors uh, juxtaposed with some uh, bright reds and oranges at times that really jump off the page, but that still feel sort of dirty, right? Because the whole idea of Silver City is that it's been around for a long time and it's kind of run down. Uh, and the other thing that Luca does really well is he he mixes this, this idea of sort of ancient uh, or or classic architecture with sort of a supernatural look. And so there's various times where we get panels where he's really pulled back and we see arches and stairs and stained glass and all this intricate design work and it's just it gives silver city this real mystical feel and real epic feel and it, it makes it feel old like it's been around there for uh, it's been around for a long time as well so uh, i know olivia has plans for more than just this first arc and i sure hope that we get it because the story is, is really really hitting its stride and it's so clear that this is a massive story in terms of scope with what uh, Olivia can tell and what there is to learn about Rue. So it's another Aftershock title that I, I highly recommend. And the art by Luca Merrily, it's just, it's just fantastic. The facial expressions, his, uh, his tendency to zoom in on people's faces uh, to show emotion. Uh, and a lot of times he'll zoom in so close that you don't even get the full face. Um, and I really, I really like that. It gives a different perspective um, and leaves plenty of room for the uh, the word balloons as well. So uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying Silver City. It, it has impressed me. Uh, after talking to Olivia, I was pretty excited for it. And I read that first issue and it completely exceeded my expectations and continues to do so because she just keeps adding in so much, um, just squeezing in so much story in uh, in every page. It's It's fantastic. So... Uh, all right, on to the last book for Jay. It's called Siphons from Image uh, and Top Cow. It's by uh, it's from a story by Mosin Ashraf. The, it's written by Patrick Meany and Mosin Ashraf. Uh, and then art is by Jeff Edwards, colors by John Kalis. Uh, it doesn't say who the letters are by, though, which is interesting. Uh, edited by Matt Hawkins and Elena Salcedo. Um, yeah, what were your thoughts, Jay? I, I, I picked it because I uh, 
thought it'd be different because I never, I didn't really know anything about it. I just thought I'd read it, but it's not bad. It, uh, it starts off with, uh, I guess you think you're meeting the main character. Her name's Catherine. You're like, oh, okay. But that didn't turn out very long. She didn't stay very long in the story, but apparently, uh, she has a gift and she passes it on to like, I guess the next person. And I guess the main character is an EMT guy named uh, Silas. I think I'm saying it right. But I guess he has this gift. And um, get a little backstory of, of why is EMT because of his past. He did some terrible things he was trying to make up for. That's why he likes to help people. Well, with the gift, um, I, I think it's a previous honest. I'm not really giving it away, but it takes away people's pain. And you see that, you know, he's enjoying by helping as he walks around, goes to different places, people who are emotionally distressed or they got issues or they're angry or some kind of like or power emotions, you can take it away to kind of relieve them a little bit. But as you read the story, you realize that uh, it, after a while, it uh, becomes too much to carry, I guess you can say. And then you have to kind of like, uh, he doesn't know how to use it at all. Let's be honest. He just, he just has it. He doesn't know what it is. He just knows he has it. Um, the ending we get that somebody's, you know, saved him, and we're thinking it's, it might be the same character you see in the first one that uh, killed Catherine. So that's what I'm assuming. I think most people would assume that, and it kind of just leaves you with that. So it's kind of like a, it's a lot going on. So I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. We'll see what happens in the next, uh, I guess, the next issue. But uh, it's not bad, and the artwork it's not terrible, but it's a, uh, it's good. I guess it just it seems very dark though. It's like I guess that's the I guess the story they wanted to be kind of dark. I guess. Except when you see the powers and it's like really bright colors. Yeah, I was really impressed with this as well. Uh, I also didn't know what to think. I, I mean, anytime there's a new number one from Top Cow, I, I, I pay attention to it because uh, those guys typically pick stories to tell or, or publish that I, I generally like. So I was I was intrigued and I read it. I was I was blown away. I love the idea. I love the world building. I love the supernatural feel. Uh, I love the the idea of of taking other people's pain and and turning it into something else. Uh, and I thought the artwork was fantastic. There are a lot of like double page spreads here where there's a lot of sort of montage pieces. And uh, there there's even in the back of the book, there's a few uh, pages where we get the script next to black and white versions of the page. And, I really liked that as well. I, I want, and basically that's what a, a lot of times a director's cut of a particular issue is. And I want, I want, it didn't have the whole issue. It only had like the first three pages. And I, I was like, man, I want the, I want the director's cut of the whole thing. <laughs> like I would, <laughs> I want to be able to read the script and see the art and, and look at the various iterations from Drew, uh, Drew Edwards, because man, I, I just thought the art was, was fantastic. Or Jeff Edwards. I think I said Drew Edwards, Jeff Edwards. Um, yeah, I was blown away. This was awesome. It was so good. Felt like a huge chunk of story. Um, and yeah, I absolutely loved it. I thought, you know, I haven't heard of, of either of these writers before, Patrick Meany or, uh, or Mohsen Ashraf. And I, I was really impressed. Jeff Edwards, obviously, I've heard of. He's been around for a while. Uh, I thought the John Kayla's colors were uh, bright when they needed to be and, and dark when they needed to be. And yeah, I, I just... I don't know. It, I was blown away. This was one of my favorite books I read this week. Um, this one and the, and the next book I'm going to talk about, last book I'm going to talk about are, are my books of the week. I couldn't pick between the two. Um, I think they're both fantastic. 
uh, and I wouldn't be surprised. This is another one of those books that you read and you go, well, that would make an awesome movie or, or TV show. Uh, it, it just, it's just fantastic. I can't wait to see where it goes next. Again, another one of those books that I haven't heard anybody talking about. So I wonder if it might not s- slide under the radar a little bit, but man, so good. So, so good. Uh, the other book that I think is, is very much worth your time this week is called Mother of Madness or Mom. Uh, it's from writers Amelia Clark and Marguerite Bennett. It's drawn by Layla Leyes, principal contributor and producer Isabel Richardson, colors by Triona Farrell, lettered by Haley Rose Leon. So it's uh, it's an all-female creative team. Uh, Amelia Clark, you, that name may sound familiar to you. Uh, she played Daenerys, I think is how you pronounce it, in Game of Thrones. Uh, I've never seen Game of Thrones, never watched Game of Thrones. I know that's going to be sacrilegious to some of you who swear by that. Um, I don't really know much about Amelia Clark. Now, Marguerite Bennett is somebody I'm a huge fan of. I pretty much pay attention to everything she does. I think she's a brilliant writer. Uh, and so she's actually the reason that I, that I picked up this book. Um, but I was glad I did. And, and clearly this is driven by uh, Amelia Clark and, and Amelia Clark writes a little letter to the readers in the, in the back of the book where she talks about going to comic cons because of game of Thrones. And, um, uh, she says there's only so many comic cons you can attend without starting to read all the amazing comics that are on display. And apparently she's always been sort of into those sorts of things. Um, and so, uh, when she decided to tell this story, and she self-identifies as a feminist. She thinks there are so many feminine issues that need to be addressed and, and conversations that need, need to be started. Um, and she decided she wanted to tell this story. And so she teamed up with Marguerite Bennett and Leila Liez and uh, created this story, which, again, I thought it was I thought it was fantastic. Really cool, interesting idea. It's uh, it's set in the future. The main character is a mother and. Uh, we meet her in, uh, does it say what year? Yeah, 2049 in New York City. She's at this party at this uh, this art museum. And then it flashes back while this character is, um, this char- her name's uh, Maya Cooper or Cupper, K-U-Y-P-E-R, um, maybe Kuiper. Anyway, Maya, she, she breaks the fourth wall. She's talking directly to us uh, while she's at this party. <laughs> Um, and supposedly it's these enlightened people and they're still just as sexist and misogynistic as ever. And then we sort of get, uh, some flashbacks to, to Maya when she was uh, at a younger age, age 11, uh, age eight, age 11, age 14, age 16. So we were kind of getting these snapshots of her life. Um, and all along she's, uh, as I said, breaking the fourth wall and talking to us and, and giving us these explanations. Um, and then we see her later in her life when she has, she's a mother, as I said, uh, and she has a, a young son and she's just trying to navigate this, this weird world that she lives in. It's our world, but you know, in the future and, and things are, are very different they haven't um, they've sort of progressed in a way that's sort of cynical and sad, but yet very realistic in terms of social media and the way people talk and expectations and the way people continue to see women um, they're still facing a lot of the same problems they're facing today, uh, and they've been facing for a long time. And so, again, it's one of the, this, this is one of those stories that makes you think that that starts a conversation. 
and uh, and it should. So um, that's sort of the, the background of it. And then the actual story itself, uh, it's the beginning of this mystery for Maya. And uh, she sort of comes comes across some events that sort of set her on this path that she's going to undertake a mission of her own and, and try to make a difference. So there's that as well. As far as her, her powers, I'm not going to get into how she gets her powers or what her powers are, but it is very cool. Very cool. The idea that Amelia Clark and Marguerite Bennett have come up with here. Um, and so, yeah, I know there's going to be a lot of people that probably dislike this book and, feel like it's it's feminine tokenism and whatnot and and they're going to complain about it but this is kind of out there and weird and i loved it um i mean it says it says it all in the blurb right if you want to just think about what's coming up next uh, on the last page it says mom is coming mom stands for mother of mayhem um, and then it says coming soon mayhem madness maya so I thought this was a fantastic introduction to these characters and to this world. Now, whether they keep with this sort of, uh, it's a very manic and fast paced uh, story, the way everything's laid out here. And they're throwing so much at us to, to try to give us the tone and, and you feel like you're under, have an understanding of the world and how chaotic it is um, and the challenges that, that females in this world face. And it's not even necessarily a linear progression in terms of the time as the story plays out. Like I mentioned, there was flashbacks. Um, so will the series continue to be a little bit chaotic like that in terms of story structure? Or now that we've kind of been thrown in the deep end and immersed, because that's what this first issue really feels like. It's a very immersive experience into the world that Clark and um, and Bennett have created. Uh, I I would be fine with that if it keeps sort of that that chaotic um, uh, immersive storytelling type, or it might switch to a little more traditional story type. Now that we've met all the characters, we know the world, and we we see the mission that Maya is on. Um, so I'm very curious for that. And uh, I also I just I loved Maya as a character. I loved her tone. I loved her characterization. I loved the way she she spoke to us. Um, She's sort of self-deprecating and, and has a sort of a dry sense of humor the way Clark and Bennett write her. So, uh, yeah, there's just a lot to like here. Normally, when it comes to these sort of crazy, weird stories, sometimes I can feel a little lost and, and kind of off-putting if it's not really structured um, where I, it's, it, I can understand what's going on. And I feel like I, you know... It, if a story feels too messy to me, it's a little bit of a, a turnoff. It feels a little off-putting. And I know that just goes to my kind of type A personality. I just don't like messes, whether it's a little, you know, a literal mess with dirty dishes and clothes thrown all over the house. And, you know, it, it just bugs me. I got to, I got to clean it up. I got to straighten it up. I don't like messes. Same thing when it comes to messy storytelling. Um, but that goes to show the strength of, of what these uh, writers have done here, that even though it feels a little chaotic and you're getting a lot of stuff thrown at you it's so strong and it's so immersive and it it fleshes out the both of the world and the characters that we meet so well that i didn't have that feeling i was just like okay i got that i got that give me more throw more at me so i thought it was fantastic um now leila leyes uh, her art i think the first time i saw it was on an aftershock book by tim seeley called uh, brilliant trash and i thought it was good then uh, she's got, and that was a couple of years ago. She clearly has gotten better. Um, the art here is fantastic. Her line work, her layouts, there's a lot of character work um, because again, there's a lot of stuff being thrown at us. 
a lot of detail in the background, a lot of pages with not only a lot of panels, but a lot of details, um, a lot of breaking of the panels. She breaks the panels a lot. Um, and that sort of contributes to this idea of there's so much coming at you in this book in terms of both the dialogue and the events and visually. Um, I, I thought the art was fantastic. So uh, I, I couldn't not give this my book of the week, but I felt the same way about Siphon when I read that. Um, they're both Siphon and Mother of, uh, of Madness here. They're both books that I'm going to read uh, again. I'm, I'm going to probably read them two or three times at least uh, before the next issue comes out. They're that good. They really, really are. So uh, highly recommend this. It's absolutely fantastic. Can't wait for more. Um, I hope that um, uh, Amelia Clark, I mean, I know there's tons of games of Game of Thrones fans out there. I hope that just by the fact that she, her name is on the book and this is her project and she was the writer on it, that it might pull in some Game of Thrones fans that aren't necessarily comic readers. And I, I hope that they dig it and I hope they keep reading it and I hope that they eventually become comic fans. We need more, um, you know, actors and actresses and whatnot uh, like Amelia Clark to, to do things like this. Hopefully the Keanu Reeves Berserker is doing the same thing. Um, and I think that uh, I'm very impressed. I mean, for a first, for a first uh, effort by Amelia Clark, I think this is fantastic. Obviously, Marguerite Bennett being a veteran comic book creator probably helped out a lot. So uh, I love that Amelia Clark didn't try to do this on her own and teamed up with Marguerite Bennett, who's, you know, like I said at the, the beginning of this review, who's super talented. So, yeah, this is this is a fantastic book. I expect to hear people talking about it. Um, and th there may be people talking about it because they don't like it, but at least they'll be talking about it. Uh, <laughs> but I but I do think more people than not are really going to like it. I, I just thought it was fantastic. So, yeah, Mother of Madness, number one. Uh, along with Siphon number one, definitely my, my books of the week. Uh, what are you going to throw your uh, shout out for book of the week to Jay? Oh, I was going to say, I, I read the story too. And uh, it was great. Um, what I liked about it is like when she does that little fight scene, she kind of lets one rip and it's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. But in the back end uh, for when you do read, when you pick up the book, uh, you're not too sure what the powers go in the back. They got a chart that explains how her powers work. And, you know, so that's kind of cool. And there's also like a little thing for, uh, people that are hurt like trafficking and so she's aware she's trying to help people i i get where she's going with it and i i appreciate that you know it's 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 and there's a lot more going on i think in the story than people that, you know you got to get in and read it. just read it. it's a good book yeah but for definitely. me i'm gonna go with Shadowcraft because i love the story i love the artwork and it's tied up and i'm sad that it's over but i'm just want to say hey that's my way of saying thanks it was a great run yeah, I think he said Shadowcraft. It's Shadecraft number five. Oh, Shadecraft, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's not a bad pick either. Um, uh, yeah. There was a lot of good books this week. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah. Tons of great books this week. So hope you get out to your local comic shop and, and pick up some, some books. Let me give a, a rundown of some other titles that you might want to be on the lookout for. There is a, uh, a new series starting over at uh, Boom Studios called Dark Blood Number 1. It's a six-issue mini. It's by LaToya Morgan, Walt Barna, and art is by Valentin Delandro. Uh, what if you're given the power to change the course of history? Alabama, 1955. Avery Aldridge is an ordinary young black man, a decorated World War II veteran, and he provides for his wife and daughter, but wounds from the past have a way of coming back, and Avery will soon discover he's anything but ordinary. So 
I mean, when you talk about Alabama in 1955 and uh, a black World War II veteran, you can kind of see where that's going. So uh, I've heard good things about it. Haven't had a chance to check it out myself. But if you're curious, that's on stands uh, from Boom Studios. We also have the many deaths of Layla Starr, number four of five from writer Ram V. That's another critically acclaimed series from uh, an incredibly talented writer uh, over at DC. And again, these are books that Rocky from Comic Boom and I talked about on yesterday's episode. So you can go and listen to that. Uh, Blue and Gold, number one of eight, which is a booster and Blue Beetle team-up series. Catwoman, number 33, also from Rom V. We have Flash, number 772, which should delight all Wally West fans. It's Wally West in back in our own time headlining the flash book like people have been clamoring for forever uh justice league number 65 from brian michael bendis uh nightwing number 82 which is kind of the the origin of melinda zuko we find out how just how she uh came to be <laughs> how this sister of uh, dick grayson happened like how how could that have happened how did he not know well it's all explained in nightwing number 82 uh shazam number one of four with Clayton Henry Art, written by Tim Sheridan. Uh, that's a limited series. Uh, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number two of eight, by Tom King, with some fantastic Bilquis Evely art, is also out this week. Superman and the Authority, another mini from DC, this time by Grant Morrison, with great art by Mikhail Yanin. An older Superman, who uh, is sort of taking matters into his own hands because he feels like he doesn't have a lot of time left. Um, so, you know, that's the whole idea of the Authority, right? Like, superpowered beings deciding to make decisions for the, the whole of humanity in order to keep things going. Um, so Superman has finally come around to that way of thinking. And uh, Grant Morrison's a great writer to take on that story. And he's a great writer to write Manchester Black, who's another main character in the story. Um, if I didn't know better, I would think Manchester Black was created by Grant Morrison. He's such a Grant Morrison-like character, but he actually was created by, um, by Joe Kelly in Action Comics number 775. So anyway, check out that first issue. Uh, Superman Red and Blue, number five of six. Uh, this is without question the best issue of Superman Red and Blue that has come out so far. There's five stories in there. Every one of them is great, bordering on absolutely fantastic. The first story and the last story for me, especially that last story by Daniel Warren Johnson, I got choked up reading it. It was so good. Uh, so that Superman Red and Blue, I do recommend picking up uh, all right, over at uh, IDW, there's Bermuda, Bermuda, number one, which is a new series from IDW. It's written by John Lehman. The art is by Nick Bradshaw. It's a crazy, I don't, I don't even know what to think, like dinosaurs. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's Bermuda, right? So it's about that region of the Atlantic Ocean where planes disappear and ships are lost and what have you. And so if there's an island there in that place where all of these lost things end up, uh, you know, what might be there? Anything from from dinosaurs to pirates to, you know, World War II soldiers and and even, uh, you know, people and things from from the modern day. So uh, it's I expect it's John Lehman, you know, with with crazy detailed Nick Bradshaw art. So. Expect that to be sort of wild and over the top. If you like that thing, I, I'd recommend picking it up. Uh, over at Image Comics, in addition to the books we talked about, we have Homesick Pilots number seven. We have Justice, uh, sorry, Jupiter's Legacy Requiem number two from uh, from Mark Miller. Uh, we have Skybound 
X number three, which is the third issue in the, the Skybound Weekly event series that's going on right now. Uh, and then Walking Dead Deluxe number 19, which is obviously is The Walking Dead from Robert Kirkman, but with color. Uh, and it's coming out twice a month. Uh, over at Marvel, in addition to the books that we talked about, we have Extreme Carnage Phage number one, which is continuing the Extreme Carnage events. We have Guardians of the Galaxy number 16. Over in the uh, X-Men corner of the universe, Marauders number 22, as well as uh, New Mutants number 20, and then X-Men Legends number five, which is written by Peter David and tells a story that fits between issues 75 and 76 of X-Factor from the Peter David run. Uh, we also have Reptile number three of four, and then a couple issues of uh, Star Wars that tie into the Star Wars Bounty Hunter storyline, Star Wars, the Bounty Hunter's Job of the Hut number one, and Star Wars Darth Vader number 14. Uh, at Vault Comics from writer Marco, Michael Marisi, Wasted Space number 22 is out this week as well. And I think that's it. Anything uh, else that you want to mention that's out this week, Jay? Uh, are you still on mute? Yeah, you are still on. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I didn't want to. I want to interrupt you there. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, Trace from Netflix. Uh, volume two comes out this week on reported mur murderers. That, I like that, and I'm glad I got it before the show came out because the book's really good. And I think you said Steak, right? From uh, it's coming out too. I did not. Uh, from Scout Comics, it's Steak number uh, five. That's actually been a fun run. Yeah, that's the vampire one, right? Right. That's yeah, really good. But those two yeah. books that I, I collect that I thought I'd throw out there. Yeah, what was the first one you said again? Uh, Trace. Who's that from? Uh, let's see. Give me a second here. Yeah, while you're looking that up, I should also mention uh, Nottingham number five of five from Mad Cave Studios, which is sort of a modern retelling of the Sheriff of Nottingham is out. Um, and I also forgot to mention from AWA Studios, Marjorie Finnegan, Temporal Criminal, number three of five. Uh, which I've been enjoying that series. AWA has been putting out some decent books. So that's, uh, that's a Garth Ennis book. Garth Ennis time travel. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely in. So. Oh, it's a blaze. That's just make it a blaze comics. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Tra uh, Trace volume two unreported uh, murders. So check that out as well. So, uh, all right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. As always, we want to thank you for joining us. Don't forget to pick up Shadecraft number five, uh, Mother of Madness number one, Siphon number one, all books of the week, all fantastic, very much worth your time. And we appreciate you joining us and supporting us as always. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.